Hi, I'm Colt Shaw, Southeast and Midwest reporter for New Project Media. And today I'm talking with Steve Levitis, Senior VP for Regulatory and Government Affairs for Pine Gate Renewables. We'll be going through the clean energy policy landscape in the Southeast, including recent changes to state law, the Southeast energy exchange market, and what it all means for developers. All right. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Cole. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So we can just uh, jump right into it. Um, Obviously, I wanted to have you on to talk about uh, sort of state level policy in the South. Uh, But before that, um, I think we should acknowledge uh, first that last month, uh, uh, the FERC commissioners deadlocked, uh, allowing the Southeastern energy exchange market to take effect. Um, That's expected to be operational by mid 2022. Um, obviously, some of the big name utilities in the in the South championed that, the passage of that, but some groups uh, like Solar Energy Industries Association uh, said it only serves the interest of the, quote, monopoly utilities. Um, I was hoping to get your thoughts on SEAM and sort of what it's uh, what the likely impact is uh, that it's going to have on uh, renewable developers, if you want to start there. Yeah, thanks. I haven't been uh, personally uh, very closely involved with SEAM. I've been following it from afar. My team has been uh, quite active. And uh, you mentioned the opposition or the concerns from our trade associations. I think it's fair to say that the renewables industry, the solar industry in particular, has been um, very critical of SEAM, very disappointed by it as an inadequate step uh, towards market reform and market access. Um, And to to your point, we just don't see that it's going to do a lot to promote renewable energy development in the Southeast. Is there some sort of a alternative uh, that's been floated uh, in its place, or is it at this point just sort of you know that's not the step to go? You know. Yeah. Um, well, you you may be aware that the South Carolina uh, legislature commissioned a study on market reform, and they will certainly. Uh, I expect that that study committee is getting into a whole range of alternatives to seem. That's the most active thing that's going on in the region right now, and looking at market reform. The nature of the proceeding that was filed by the the SEAM uh, participants is such that there's not really an opportunity in that proceeding to propose something different. It's more um, uh, kind of up or down possibility, maybe of some modifications, but certainly not the opportunity to um, at FERC to drive a more comprehensive and robust uh, uh, market reform. Uh, so uh, what was the timeline, as far as you know, uh, for that South Carolina study? And sort of what do you expect to come out of that? Yeah, um, my belief is that that study is supposed to be completed by the end of the year so that the study committee can report back into the uh, 2020. Um, well, I, I said the end of the year. I think I forgot it was November. <laughs> so I may have lost track of time here because I know they're just getting started with their work. But I thought the goal was to get back to the South Carolina session, but their their next, it, it may it may be a, a full year ahead. I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer on that. Um, and I can't I can't really forecast um, uh, what the outcome will be, but but the authorizing legislation is very broad and very inclusive, and um, uh, I think could lead to recommendations uh, you know across the full range of options from joining a regional transmission organization, creating a new one, creating an energy imbalance market or a variety of other reforms. All right. Well, uh, so if we want to sort of jump right into the uh, uh, the state level, I was wondering if we could kind of start broad. And I was wondering, uh, just thus far in your tenure at uh, Pinegate, 
Uh, what have, you know? What are some of the biggest uh, policy changes uh, that you've seen uh, that have been a you know boon to renewables in the southeast? Or yeah, well, we've had, um, and and I should just mention that. So this is my third solar company. So I, I've been working on uh, in the solar industry on policy for the last six years. Um, I started Pine Gate two years ago. So some of some of the things that have occurred were prior to my joining Pine Gate, and then a number of things since then. But the I would say the most significant developments in the Southeast in that time frame in recent years have been the, the major legislation that's been passed in several states. So that began with, um, well, actually, um, South Carolina, I don't remember the year of that bill, Act 236 was an important piece of renewable legislation. I was not involved in that one. But um, in 2017, North Carolina passed comprehensive clean energy legislation. It was House Bill 589. Um, among the more important things that that legislation did was to create a mandate for competitive procurement of renewable energy, um, roughly 2,600 uh, megawatts of new renewable energy, as well as creating um, new programs for participation by large customers in renewable energy procurement, which I can tell you more about if, if you're interested. So that was 2017. Then in 2019, South Carolina passed the Energy Freedom Act, which again was another piece of comprehensive legislation that did a variety of things to um, express the legislature's support for clean energy um, to change its implementation of um, the Public Utilities Regulatory Utility Regulatory Policies Act or PERPA in important ways um, to create customer programs, to change integrated resource planning. Uh, so that was really landmark legislation um, and uh, passed, I think, almost unanimously uh, in South Carolina. And then the following year in Virginia, the Virginia Clean Economy Act was passed, um, which is a very comprehensive piece of energy legislation with a lot of components to it, but most notably, um, uh, unlike um, the first two bills I mentioned, um, there was uh, a, a new aggressive renewable energy portfolio standard. So directing the Virginia utilities to acquire very large amounts of renewables in their portfolio over the coming decades. And then finally, um, just last month mm -hmm. in North Carolina, uh, House Bill 951 was passed and signed into law, um, which creates um, a 70% um, decarbonization goal by 2030, which is going to result in very large amounts of renewables procurement over the next decade. Yeah, I wanted to, to touch on that uh, North Carolina bill. Uh, I sort of how do you how do you see that affecting the uh, renewable field and uh, procurement? Uh, you know, in the next combo, the next uh, few years, and then sort of further down the line. Um, and obviously, as a as a company that's that's big in North Carolina, obviously you you had to be cheering that on. And yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, if you wouldn't mind expanding on that a little bit. More. Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. I was very heavily involved in the development of nine fifty one. Um, so, um, if you look at um, the seventy percent decarbonization goal by twenty thirty, there's a lot of analysis that's been done um, about what would be involved in achieving that goal. Um, and that analysis, and some of that's been done by third parties, but uh, Duke Energy, and, and that goal applies exclusively to Duke Energy, um, that uh, Duke Energy's integrated resource plans in North and South Carolina 
uh, all show um, or provide analysis of what a portfolio mix would look like to achieve 70% decarbonization by 2030. And um, it varies some because Duke has filed an amended plan in South Carolina that's different from their North Carolina plan. Um, but just looking at Duke's own numbers, um, you see a, um, a need of, for uh, anywhere from nine to 11 gigawatts of new solar procurement. So that's a, a lot, you know, a lot more than is in the ground today. Um, and if you look at some of the interveners critiques of Duke's plan um, and some of the other analysis that, that's been done, um, there's suggestion that that number could be considerably higher. So a massive amount of solar additions, Duke's plans also look at the possibility of offshore wind. They, um, they're, their 70% uh, decarbonization plans show multiple gigawatts, I think three or four gigawatts of offshore wind, as well as a similar amount of, of um, battery storage. One thing I was wondering, uh, obviously, uh, Alabama is typically talked about uh, in the southeast as sort of one of the hardest nuts to crack in the region. Um, I was in Atlanta for a uh, solar conference uh, not too long ago, and there just seemed to be a lot of pessimism uh, in, in discussion of that state. And I was wondering uh, what efforts you've seen uh, to push clean energy policy there. And do you have any hope uh, on that front? Well, I'm always optimistic that um, we're going to get good public policy solutions. But certainly Alabama has a great solar resource and a great opportunity to save money for ratepayers through significant solar additions. Um, it really is a function of policy. And you know, if you look at the, some of the types of measures that I've talked about, as well as some things that have been done uh, in other states, um, we just haven't seen those policy measures adopted in, in Alabama. We hope they're coming. And um, certainly, if you look around the country, as, as you know, um, renewable energy is the future. It's the right solution for the economy and the right solution for the environment. And, it's eventually coming, and it's of course a huge, um, huge job creator, great um, source of revenue for local governments. Um, it's one of the largest sources of investment in rural counties in in the Carolinas, and um, I like to think that Alabama is going to eventually understand that and embrace it. Yeah, are there any other uh, states in the southeast that you have found uh, particularly challenging? Um, and um, yeah, any other states that you sort of uh, look at in the southeast as sort of leading the way uh, uh, for renewables at the moment? Well, um, a couple of things. Georgia has, um, I haven't looked at the rankings, uh, state rankings in a little while, but Georgia has been, certainly um, jumped into a, a leadership role in recent years. And interestingly, that that's largely been driven by decisions at their public service commission to require the utility to procure renewables. So it hasn't been so much legislative policy as regulators um, uh, directing competitive procurement. Um, similarly, I mean, Florida uh, has, you know, went from the Sunshine State, went from being a real laggard with respect to renewables to massive additions in recent years. The um, sort of frustration and problem there is that market has been totally dominated by the monopoly utilities who've succeeded in pretty much excluding independent power producers from participating in the market, mm. which of course is 
not good for ratepayers and um, unnecessarily drives up the cost of those solar additions. Yeah. Uh... Another thing that I've been uh, sort of uh, wondering, uh, it might be kind of a tough question, but are there uh, any respects when it comes to uh, clean energy policy in the Southeast that you think the region is actually ahead of the curve or, uh, you know, doing something that's uh, unique? Well, um, a couple of things. Uh, Certainly the 70% decarbonization goal that's now been enacted by a Republican legislature in partnership with the Democratic governor in, in North Carolina is... Um, as um, one of the more um, ag- aggressive and progressive steps that we've seen taken anywhere. So I think North Carolina is a leader in that regard. The Virginia legislation is um, really far-reaching um, and comprehensive and important. So if you look at those two bills, those I think people would look at as among um, some of the best legislation that's been adopted in the country. Um, South Carolina study that I mentioned um, um, is certainly a very uh, kind of thoughtful, progressive step by their le- legislature. Um, so there, there are some important steps that have been taken. I think, conversely, um, if you're looking at some of the some of the impediments uh, or some of the ways in which the South has not been as much of a leader, the, you know, the real there there are a couple of key factors that drive the success of, of renewables deployment and renewables procurement. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the first is that there's got to be some form of market access that allows renewables to participate in the market, and that either means that um, you have to have some type of um, mandate for a renewable portfolio standard in North Carolina was for a long time the only state in the Southeast that had one. Virginia now has one uh, as well. Um, so that's one type of driver uh, in the market. Um, the other that I've touched on a couple of times is competitive procurement. So um, if you have uh, some way of, of requiring the utilities to competitively procure their generation from all resources, then renewables have a way to come in and say, hey, we're the best choice for ratepayers." You need to add renewables rather than gas or some other option. And so we have, I mentioned the Georgia example where Georgia's been, been a leader in competitive procurement in North Carolina through our legislation. Um, the South Carolina uh, Energy Freedom Act that I mentioned uh, directed their commission to look at, com- at competitive procurement. And I really think that's the wave of the future and, and what's needed. But we, we still have a number of states in the Southeast where we haven't had that kind of market access. I mentioned PURPA a little while ago, this federal law that requires utilities to um, purchase the output from independently owned renewables facilities, smaller renewables facilities. Um, and that's been another um, key issue is how the states implement PURPA. Um, North Carolina was a longtime leader in implementing PURPA in a way that was, that I would say was consistent with the law and favorable to independent power producers. And that had a lot to do with the growth of the North Carolina market. We really haven't seen any other state in the Southeast besides South Carolina implement PURPA in a way that that fosters renewables development. So that's just another factor. Gotcha. Well, so um, obviously you're coming from an IPP standpoint. Uh, you know, uh, as someone that works directly uh, with, you know, regulatory affairs, uh, if you had a magic wand, say, what are some of the sort of, uh, you know, big, uh, 
you know, laws that you would like to see pass, you know, if, if you, if you had your druthers over the next couple of years. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, where I'd probably start is with the integrated resource planning. I haven't mentioned that yet, but um, all of these States are, um, well, perhaps before I get to that, I might go back to market reform for a second because you know, probably the, the single most important thing that you could do from a policy standpoint is open the wholesale market to competition um, and, and have an organized market as we see in most of the rest of the country. But short of that, um, with the states as, uh, operating as monopoly utilities, um, the, the first thing is for the regulatory commissions to um, implement a planning process that is open and inclusive and that um, utilizes good data and good assumptions and makes sound decisions about what the resource mix should be for the state. Um, we're pretty confident renewables uh, will prevail when you do that kind of analysis. But doing the analysis only gets you so far doing the planning because historically, these plans have really been paper exercises that didn't really drive what happened in terms of implementation or execution. Mm. So the next step is have a good planning process, but then have that planning process drive the procurement. So that's what decides, determines what actually gets built on the ground. And Colorado has been a real leader nationally uh, and pointed to as a model of integrating the planning process with the uh, procurement process. So get the planning right, figure out what the right resource mix is, have that lead directly into procurement. Uh, and then as I touched on several times already, have that be an open competitive process that all resources get to participate in. Gotcha. Well, um, uh, so, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, sort of uh, looking ahead to the next year, are there any uh, you know, potential policy changes that you're keeping an eye on uh, and that you are maybe, you know, directly, you know, lobbying for or, or advocating for in the media? Well, um, my uh, biggest focus personally is the implementation of house bill 951, um, which we've talked about a couple of times now. And, the reason that's so important is because the, the legislature bill that ultimately passed this year um, went from a 50-page bill that passed the House that had a lot of detail about implementation in it to a much shorter bill, I think it was 10 or 11 pages. Um, and that was driven by a belief by a variety of participants and stakeholders and legislators that it would be better to leave more of the decision-making um, about how to achieve the 70% goal to the North Carolina Utilities Commission. Um, the result of that is that there are gonna be very um, uh, lengthy, probably contentious, um, complex proceedings before the commission in the coming year to determine uh, how that bill gets implemented. And specifically what the bill requires is that do come before the commission, well, actually, it requires that the commission develop a plan for achieving the 70% goal based on filings that will be made by Duke in terms of what they would propose. And there'll be a lot of stakeholder and intervener participation. So that is certainly, um, I think the most significant uh, thing going on in the Southeast, at least to our company, the South, the, uh, South Carolina study process is hugely important. And I mentioned the Virginia um, Clean Economy Act, Mm -hmm. um, that act is also uh, set up in a way that involves annual proceedings in which uh, the utilities come in and present a plan for how they're going to comply with the mandates of that law. And so 
those ongoing proceedings are important. And then I think uh, just beyond that, I think um, trying to advance uh, the, the model that I described to you of getting better integrated resource planning linked to procurement. And I'm hopeful that we'll see some movement in maybe some of the other states. All right, Steve, I think that is a, a good place to leave it. This was a uh, fascinating talk, and I hope uh, maybe sometime next year you'll uh, join us again to uh, chat more in depth uh, about the implementation of that uh, North Carolina emissions bill. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this is Colt Shaw with New Project Media.